Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode features graphic depictions of violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. One brother dead, the other a fugitive. When would the nightmare end and could Boston finally rest? This is Method and Madness, Episode 16, The Boston Marathon Bombing, Part 3. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... The police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. The early hours of April 19, 2013, in Watertown, Massachusetts, while nervous residents peeked out of their windows, a shootout between police and the two suspects of the Boston bombing was resulting in more bloodshed. 210 rounds were fired at the two brothers responsible, and there were more explosions, an end to a week that had already been terrifying and devastating. Let's dive in. On the pavement of Laurel Street, officers attempting to handcuff 26-year-old Tamerlan Sarnayev rolled out of the way as the stolen Mercedes SUV driven by 19-year-old Johar Sarnayev came speeding toward them, running over Tamerlan in the process. Gravely wounded by gunshots, shrapnel, road rash, and blunt force trauma from being run over, Tamerlan was loaded into an ambulance where paramedic Michael Sullivan treated him en route to the hospital. Tamerlan, even in the state he was in, was still combative. Held down by restraints on the stretcher, he resisted medical help from Sullivan and instead thrashed about in the back of the ambulance, refused the IV being placed in his arm, and was yelling at the paramedic in what was described as a growl. Upon arrival at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Tamerlan, handcuffed, was treated by emergency medical personnel who attempted to revive him, as, by this point, he was unconscious. He had lost a massive amount of blood and CPR was performed, along with intubation. Tamerlan was pronounced dead at 1.35 a.m. the morning of Friday, April 19th. His death certificate lists his manner of death as homicide, with the cause of death, gunshot wounds of torso and extremities, as well as blunt trauma to head and torso. In the section filled in on how the injuries occurred, it stated, quote, shot by police and then run over and dragged by motor vehicle. And what about Johar? After running over his brother, he attempted to flee in the stolen Mercedes, but didn't get far. He abandoned the SUV in Watertown, smashed his cell phone on the ground, and before police could catch up to him, he ran from the scene on foot. The police had been so close, but now one of the bombers was once again on the loose and dangerous. We also want to speak to 
the residents and the public within the town of Watertown and the cities and towns that are abutting Watertown. And to be specific, we are speaking to the residents of Watertown, Newton, Waltham, Belmont, Cambridge, and the Alston Brighton neighborhoods of Boston. To those people, we are asking you to stay indoors, to stay in your homes for the time being. We are asking businesses in those areas uh, to please cooperate and not open today until we can provide further guidance and information. By this point, police had publicly identified the two suspects as Tamerlan and Johar Sarnayev. And at 7 a.m. Friday, a new photo of Johar was released. This photo showed him in a gray hoodie, and the public were warned that this was a hunt for a terrorist who could be armed with weapons, IEDs. It was unknown. Police put the city of Boston on lockdown while they searched for the surviving bomber. Residents were told to shelter in place. Schools, businesses, and mass transit were closed. FBI, local law enforcement, and the military, all heavily armed, began door-to-door searches in Watertown. The media outlets were asked not to film the police actions and vehicles were banned from roadways, leaving the streets empty. It was an eerie kind of quiet. But investigators weren't taking any chances. They knew the kind of danger they were dealing with. People inside their homes in Watertown tweeted out photos of the view from their windows, military vehicles on their streets, SWAT teams, officers in tactical gear walking or in position from rooftops, the sounds of helicopters overhead, and the caution to not open your front door for anyone but a police officer unnerved the residents. Armed agents and officers searched dumpsters, apartments, homes, yards. From Maryland, the uncle of Johar, Ruslan Sarnai, spoke with reporters outside his home and begged his nephew to turn himself in. I say, Johar, if you're alive, turn yourself in and ask for forgiveness from the victims, from the injured, and from those who left. Ask forgiveness from these people. We're not requiring forgiveness in this family. He put a shame, he put a shame on the Tsarnaev family, Tsarnaev's family. He put a shame on the entire Chechen ethnicity. Because everyone now names, they play with word Chechen. So they put that shame on the entire ethnicity. So that's what I would say. Turn yourself in and whatever, whatever one, I mean, put yourself at the discretion of those who are here. It was warm that day, a high of 75. And around 6 p.m., David Henneberry went into his backyard on Franklin Street in Watertown for a cigarette. The official lockdown had just been lifted. Law enforcement at that point thought they may have lost the suspect, but most residents were still being cautious. Next door, neighbor Lori Toy spotted David outside and thought, wow, he's brave going outside at a time like this. While in his backyard, David glanced over at his dry-docked boat, which sat alongside his fence, separating his yard from Lori's. He noticed that one of the straps on the boat was cut, 
So he grabbed a stepladder and placed it on the ground next to the boat and rolled up the tarp. Peering inside, he saw blood and a body on the floor and ran inside his home to call 911. Next door, neighbor Lori was washing dishes when she heard the sound of fast, thundering footsteps on the side of her house, and she instantly knew the police were taking action and he must be nearby. She grabbed her infant son and found cover in a room with no windows, and after a few minutes, police were at her door telling her and her husband Brendan that they were pretty sure they had the suspect cornered in the boat next door. Lori and her family left with the officers as they continued to close in on the boat. The neighborhood was surrounded. Residents were evacuated for their safety, and all responding law enforcement were ready. The bomber's presence in the boat was verified by the use of infrared thermal imaging viewed from a helicopter above the scene. Soon, law enforcement saw movement as it appeared that Johar was moving the tarp back. Not knowing if the suspect was armed, police began shooting their weapons until they were advised by radio to hold their fire. After negotiators were brought in to urge the suspect from the boat, 16 hours into the manhunt at 8.45 p.m., Johar emerged, seriously wounded, the light from a sniper's gun on his forehead, and he pulled up his shirt to reveal he wasn't armed. Officers moved in quickly, getting him down to the ground where they arrested him and handcuffed him while he lay in the grass. He was bleeding a lot. He'd been wounded in the neck in a possible suicide attempt and in the leg by the bullets from the night before and the gunfire leading up to his capture. Johar was loaded into an ambulance, and as it was driven through the Boston neighborhoods toward the hospital, crowds gathered and cheered. It was a sight to see, the relief that the manhunt was over, the gratitude for law enforcement, and the thrill that the surviving bomber was alive. The people of Boston and around the country wanted Johar Sarnayev to have his day in court. At 8.46 p.m., the Boston police tweeted out, quote, captured, the hunt is over, the search is done, the terror is over, and justice has won. Suspect in custody. While in the ambulance, Johar cooperated with the paramedics, informed them of his allergy to cats, and was admitted to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center's ICU. The boat, ruined by the bullets, was taken in by the FBI as evidence. The residents in and around the crime scene were not allowed to return to their homes for two days, and when they did, they were met with bullet-riddled fences and shutters, a dismal reminder of the chaos that happened in their own backyard. Inside the cabin of the boat, a note was scrawled in pencil on the wall. Described as half-manifesto, half-suicide note, with some of the words being obscured by the bullet holes inflicted during Johar's capture, in this letter, Johar said, quote, I am jealous of my brother, who has received the reward of Genuto Fir Daus, inshallah, before me. I do not mourn, because his soul is very much alive. God has a plan for each person. Mine was to hide in his boat and shed some light on our actions. 
He goes on to praise Allah and wrote about the government killing, quote, our innocent civilians and that he couldn't stand to see evil go unpunished. The note was seen as a full-on confession and further confirmed the suspicions that Tamerlan was the brains of the operation. Johar was guarded heavily while hospitalized in serious condition, and he struggled to speak due to injuries to his tongue. He had emergency surgery to repair the multiple gunshot wounds to the base of his skull, mouth, and vertebrae. He nodded his head in response to questions by interrogators, as well as writing answers down. He told investigators that he and his brother acted alone. He was not read his Miranda rights immediately, as the Justice Department used the Miranda public safety exception. This, of course, was a controversial decision, as there were two schools of thought here. Some would go on to say that there was no longer a danger to the public as one suspect was in custody and another was dead, and therefore, Johar should have been Mirandized. On the other hand, there was the argument that this was an issue of national security and information was critical. He was questioned throughout the weekend while heavily sedated and in a great deal of pain. He informed investigators that the bombs were built at he and his brother's apartment in Cambridge. Extensive searches of the apartment were conducted by the FBI, where Tamerlan had lived with his wife, Catherine, and their toddler. Agents in hazmat suits found a cluttered, dirty living space that was described as a construction site. Tools, debris, more bombs, and the components to make them. By Monday, Johar was read his Miranda rights and charged with using a weapon of mass destruction and malicious destruction of property. He was appointed a lawyer and continued to be questioned. Tamerlan's now widow, 24-year-old Catherine, what did she know? And who was she? There would be a lot of questions about how much she knew, if she was a victim, if she was an accomplice. While Tamerlan was home, reading Al-Qaeda literature, making bombs, and raising their daughter, Catherine was working long hours, sometimes 80 hours a week, in the healthcare field. She was raised by Christian parents in Rhode Island, where those who knew her described her as quote-unquote normal, a girl that went by Katie who was bubbly, headstrong, and took ballet lessons as a kid. She met Tamerlan through a mutual friend, and they got married in 2010, and friends think he radicalized her. She converted to Islam, began wearing a hijab, and became estranged from her family. By all accounts, it seems that her friends and family were shocked by these changes. After the attacks, Catherine was investigated by the FBI and counterterrorism investigators, and according to her lawyer, always cooperated while maintaining that she had no knowledge of what her husband was planning. To this day, Catherine has never been charged with anything and reportedly has gotten remarried and wants to live a quiet life. And with the surviving suspect in custody and a decent amount of details being released about the timeline of events, there were reactions from those who knew Johar personally, 
former teachers, coaches, friends, classmates. One friend, Ahmad Nasri, was stunned. He told 60 Minutes Later that, quote, If someone a few days ago told me that one of my friends was responsible for the bombs, the bombing in Boston, I would have named off at least 90% of everyone that I knew before I would have said Johar. This gets into that area where, on the one hand, it's hard to see this person as a student, a man who just a couple years ago had been considered a child, a minor, a guy that made his friends laugh, that some of his female friends crushed on. Is it wrong to look into this kind of past and try to get to know who Jahar Sarnayev was before becoming radicalized? Is there any purpose to learning his history and interviewing those who loved him and have positive things to say about his time in the sixth grade? If it helps to identify future violent offenders, future terrorists, and the FBI can use that to create a profile, then I would say, sure, let's go for it. I'm all for profiling in order to understand violent offenders, though I'm skeptical that it does much to prevent crime. However, if we go back to the previous episode and consider the psychology of terrorism, the findings by Randy Borum and his team, the conclusion that there are no significant indications that mental illness is tied to terrorism, nor is there a simple profile to look at, not like the typical profile of a serial killer where you're looking for childhood trauma, indicators of abuse, bedwetting, cruelty to animals, etc. With terrorism, and just as importantly, how a person is recruited into terrorism, is it helpful to look at their upbringing? Possibly. The fundamental question of nature versus nurture. Was Johar Sarnayev born a monster or was he made into one? The psychology of terrorism says that rather than making a conscious decision to become an extremist, a terrorist, that it's more of a gradual conversion of sorts, gaining more and more exposure to extremism. If Johar was spending a lot of time with his brother, if Tamerlan was the role model in his life from his time exiting puberty and entering adulthood, was this how he was slowly recruited into extremism? It's certainly the stance that the defense team would take in the upcoming trial, that Tamerlan was the leader and Johar the follower. However, it's important not to dismiss Johar's role and his responsibility. Maybe his brother was responsible for the recruitment. But that image of Johar at the finish line, backpack slipping from his shoulder while standing behind eight-year-old Martin Richard, that cannot be underplayed. And it's that moment, that action where Johar could have made a different choice. And quite frankly, it's that specific moment where I couldn't care less that Johar was a nice kid who'd give his friends a ride home if needed. Johar didn't even express immediate regret or go and turn his brother in to prevent future violence. He went and bought milk. The investigation and preparation for trial was underway, and on April 21st, agents searched Johar's dorm room, where they found the clothes he was wearing at the marathon, the white hat, along with BB pellets and gunpowder. 
On May 1st, the three friends of Johar's who went to his dorm room to dispose of evidence were arrested. Azmat Tasakayov and Diaz Kadarbayev were already in custody, stemming from questioning on April 20th. Law enforcement were looking into their involvement in the bombing and brought them in, and it certainly didn't help that the two men were driving around in a car with the license plate Terrorista Number 1. They were each charged with obstruction of justice, and the third man, Robel Filippos, was charged with lying to federal agents. On May 22nd, a man named Ibrahim Todashev was questioned at his home in Orlando. Now, due to his connections to Tamerlan Tsarnaev and the pair's suspected involvement in a triple homicide in Waltham, Massachusetts, which stemmed back from 2011, it was a brutal murder. All three victims were nearly decapitated, and there was marijuana spread over their bodies and throughout the apartment. One of the victims was apparently good friends with Tamerlan at one point. Now, during this hours-long interrogation in Orlando, police say that Todashev became increasingly more agitated and lunged at the officers with a broom handle. Todashev was shot and killed by the police, allegedly, while he began writing a confession to the murder of the three men and after he had implicated Tamerlan as an accomplice. Sketchy details of his death have come out, conflicting stories of why he was shot and whether the killing was justified. As the agent who shot him, Aaron McFarlane has a history of documented corruption as well as charges against him for brutality. So the triple homicide case hasn't been officially solved, and now the two accused are deceased. Oh, and a side note, if you're interested in finding out more about the case of the Waltham triple homicide, I highly recommend checking out the podcast Unresolved. On July 10th, Johar pleaded not guilty to 30 federal counts, and by July 21st, Azmat Tasakayev was found guilty and sentenced to three and a half years for his role. In December, a controversial issue of Rolling Stone was about to hit newsstands, with Johar on the cover, looking like he was about to release a new album. Retail establishments like Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, and others boycotted the magazine and refused to sell the issue. Rolling Stone defended the decision, pointing out that the New York Times had used the same photo on their cover months earlier, but that there was no backlash then. Oh, and a side note, contrary to what some of the public thought at the time, this was not a photo that Rolling Stone did as some kind of jailhouse photo shoot. It was a photo Johar had taken of himself before the bombing. Anyway, while Rolling Stone's article on Johar was in-depth regarding the attack and the investigation, there was outrage. Boston Mayor Tom Menino wrote an open letter to a Rolling Stone publisher, criticizing the cover as rewarding a terrorist with celebrity treatment. And Massachusetts State Police Sergeant Sean Murphy leaked photos of Johar merging from the dry-docked boat, disheveled and bloody to Boston Magazine to show the real side of the terrorist. Murphy was disciplined for this action and retired after. In January 2014, 
federal prosecutors filed notice that they would seek the death penalty in the case against Johar Sarnayev. August. Diaz Kadarbayev pleaded guilty to the charge of obstruction of justice, was sentenced to six years, and as a part of the agreement, would be deported back to Kazakhstan at the end of his jail term. Robel Filippos was convicted in October 2014 and sentenced to 42 months for his involvement. In March 2015, the jury of eight men and 10 women, 12 primary and six alternates, was selected for the trial of Johar Sarnayev, a grueling task as it was difficult to find an impartial group in Boston, as you can imagine. Meanwhile, Johar's family were desperately trying to reach him to get him to stop working with his defense team. His family, convinced that he was innocent and that the bombing was staged by the U.S., were appalled that he was being tried for crimes that never happened. This stance seemed to change over time, from the crimes being a huge quote-unquote play that the blood on Boylston Street was paint, to Tamerlan and Johar weren't responsible for the crimes. And finally, the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts, the trial, began on March 4, 2015, with the prosecution prepared to show that the planned attacks were motivated by Islamic radicalism and that Sarnayev brothers were equal participants, partners in crime. Why a trial, though? There was no question that Shohar Sarnayev did it. His defense team was not going to argue that he didn't do it. They conceded his involvement. But with the death penalty on the table, with 17 of the 30 charges carrying a possible death sentence, the defense planned to provide enough reasonable doubt for the jury to conclude that Johar was led by his brother and therefore deserved life sentences, not death. Which brings me to this question. Does that matter? Does someone deserve less of a punishment for their crimes if it wasn't their idea, but they willfully went through with it? Obviously, there's a lot of nuance here depending on the crime, but specifically, would Johar be deserving of a lesser punishment if the defense could cast enough doubt that he was as willing as Tamerlan? And let's put aside just for a moment whether you're pro-death penalty or not. Let's say hypothetically, the punishment was two life sentences versus one life sentence. Does the fact that Johar was a recruit into terrorism make his crimes less? Let's break down all 30 charges. So, the 17 charges that included the possibility of a death sentence were the ones involving the planning and execution of the Marathon bombing, as well as the murder of Officer Sean Collier. For the two bombs placed on Boylston Street, there were three charges each. There were three charges against him for Collier's murder and several charges for using a weapon of mass destruction which resulted in death. The other charges not carrying possible death sentences included the crimes associated with Dunmeng's carjacking, the shooting of Officer Donahue in Watertown, and basically other crimes that didn't directly cause a death. There was a ton of physical evidence presented by the U.S. Attorney's Office, mock-up of the pressure cooker bombs, 
which were said to not be that sophisticated. Shrapnel removed from Crystal Campbell's body, IEDs, bullets, and a gun found at the Watertown crime scene. Johar's backpack, which was retrieved from where his friend had disposed of it. Dunmeng's ATM card, which was found in the boat. Al-Qaeda literature from the Cambridge apartment. But the defense were preparing to show that a lot of this had Tamerlan's literal and metaphorical fingerprints. There was a question, and it appears that according to some sources, there still is, on where the bombs were made. Some investigators were not convinced that Tamerlan built the bombs, and there are suspicions that another man may have been involved. Now, I'm the last person you'll find wearing a tinfoil hat, but there's definitely something rotten in Denmark if there's a possibility that another person is involved, yet that person has not been identified or brought to justice. Either way, I wish, and I'm sure the people of Boston do as well, that Tamerlan had lived to see his own trial. It would have been interesting to see how his defense would have been prepared. The prosecution called more than 90 witnesses to testify, including people who were present at the marathon, people who described the impact, their own injuries. It took nearly a month to go through all of the testimony. The defense team, which included Judy Clark, who defended Ted Kaczynski and spared him the death penalty, well, they had their work cut out for them. The prosecution did a stellar job of painting the picture of violence and the impact of Johar's actions. They showed the graphic photos of the destruction on Boylston Street, the injuries, the photos and video of Johar with the backpack, the horrific images of Martin, Crystal, and Ling Zi after they died, including the details of their autopsies. Videos of people literally being blown apart. Dunmeng testified about being hijacked and the terrifying hour-plus that he spent with the Sarnayev brothers. The jury heard about Officer Sean Collier, how he always wanted to be a cop, how he would take a bug outside rather than harm it. They heard how he was killed execution-style while doing his job, never standing a chance. How Tamerlan wanted suicide by cop when in Watertown. Witnesses spoke about how even with the deaths and the injuries, that Boston's spirit wasn't broken. Crystal Campbell's mother said in a victim impact statement, quote, I know life is hard, but the choices that you made were despicable. Images of Lu Lingzi showed a young woman who loved life and saw studying in the U.S. as a fun adventure as she grinned at the camera in a set of Minnie Mouse ears. Martin Richards' smiling face as he posed for the camera at a hockey game, and he became known as the second grader who once did a school project, a large peace sign where he wrote, No More Hurting People. That image would not be forgotten. Throughout the trial, with all the images presented and videos played, Johar sat at the defense table and showed zero emotion. The defense and their strategy was considered weak and anticlimactic. They called four witnesses in total, 
One, a computer forensic analyst, Mark Spencer, who testified that the digital evidence, the bomb recipes, the purchases of the components for the bombs, the internet searches, that this was all on Tamerlan's device and nothing related to the preparation was found on Johar's computer. There was also the physical evidence. Tamerlan's fingerprints were found on one of the pressure cookers as well as other elements that went into the making of the bombs. While this certainly did more to prove how much Tamerlan was involved, it didn't take Johar out of the equation, as fingerprints could have been destroyed by the explosions, and there's no way of knowing who was using what laptop. Johar never testified. Closing arguments came in on April 6th, and the case was handed over to the jury, who deliberated for 11 and a half hours. And on Wednesday, April 8th, Johar Sarnayev stood up in the courtroom, his head down, while the verdicts were read. It took 26 minutes for all 30 verdicts on all 30 counts to be spoken, guilty on all charges. The penalty phase was next, and on May 15th, Johar was sentenced to death, specifically for the charges that he was directly involved in, which included the deaths of Lu Lingzi and Martin Richard. It was determined that the deaths of Crystal Campbell, who was killed by the bomb that Tamerlan placed, and the death of Sean Collier, who Johar said was shot by Tamerlan, that those two charges merited the sentencing of life without the possibility of parole. On June 24th, at his formal sentencing, Johar broke his silence and issued the following apology, saying, quote, Immediately after the bombing, which I am guilty of, if there's any lingering doubt about that, let there be no more. I did do it along with my brother. I learned of some of the victims. I learned their names, their faces, their age. And throughout this trial, more of those victims were given names. More of those victims had faces and they had burdened souls. Now, all those who got up on that witness stand and that podium related to us, to me, I was listening. The suffering that was and the hardship that still is, with strength and with patience and with dignity. Now, Allah says in the Quran that no soul is burdened with more than it can bear. And you told us just how unbearable it was, how horrendous it was, this thing I put you through. And I know that you kept that much. I know that there isn't enough time in the day for you to have related to us everything. I also wish that far more people had a chance to get up there, but I took that from you. Now I am sorry for the lives that I have taken, for the suffering that I have caused you, for the damage that I have done. Irreparable damage. He spoke in a low voice, never looking at the faces of the victims' families, and spoke of his devotion to Islam and the merciful Allah and how he would pray for the families. Little, if any, of this statement had any impact on the families and the victims. The image of Johar standing in the courtroom would always be overshadowed by his image at the finish line. And the image of him in his jail cell in 2013, giving a middle finger to the surveillance camera, showing that with all the time in the world to sit and reflect on what he had done, his actions never showed remorse. On July 18th, Johar was sent to Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado also known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies and a clean version of hell. This is the home of Ted Kaczynski, 
McVeigh's co-conspirator Terry Nichols, Richard Reed, the infamous shoe bomber, Ramsey Youssef, one of the men responsible for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, a few al-Qaeda operatives involved in 9-11, the list goes on. In other words, Johar is exactly where he belongs. His life inside the prison would be one of 23 hours per day of solitary confinement in a 12-by-7-foot cell with one 4-inch wide window overlooking the prison yard and walls so thick that inmates can't speak to each other. Meals are passed through a slot in the solid steel cell door, and each cell is equipped with a built-in concrete bed and combination toilet and sink with a shower set with a timer, as well as a small television that offers educational and recreational programming. In January 2016, Johar sought a new trial, his lawyers claiming that he didn't receive a fair one the year before. This was denied. In December 2018, his lawyers appealed the death sentence and claimed that the trial should never have been held in Boston as it was impossible to have an impartial jury. And in July 2020, a federal court vacated Johar's death sentence, saying that he will receive a new penalty phase trial based on the jury selection and that the jurors may not have been vetted well enough for bias. The Department of Justice has appealed the decision to overturn the death sentence, and as of March 2021, the Supreme Court agreed to review the appeal. Meanwhile, the two Sarnayev sisters have each had their fair share of run-ins with the law in the past eight years and apparently still live in the U.S., while both parents are back in Dagestan. Mother Zubaida fears returning to the U.S. as she has a warrant out for her arrest due to a shoplifting charge. This past January 2021, Johar made headlines when he sued the federal government for $250,000 in an eight-page handwritten lawsuit where he said that his mental health and physical health were declining due to his treatment at the Supermax prison. Johar has claimed that he is only allowed three showers a week and deserves more. And part of his complaint is that the prison took away two items that he had purchased from the commissary, a bandana and a white hat, similar to the one he wore on April 15, 2013. According to the lawsuit, Johar claims that prison guards confiscated the items because they disrespected the FBI and the victims. As of this recording, a judge stated that the filing of the lawsuit was deficient for lack of a $402 filing fee and the lack of a certified copy of the prisoner's trust fund statement. Let's end this on a positive note and recognize the good that came out of Boston. Those that are Boston strong, those people that returned to the marathon the following year, determined not to let darkness shadow their triumphs, those that refused to hunker down defeated. The heroic act of Dunmang, which most likely prevented more devastation. The hundreds of people that showed up and helped, that arranged fundraisers to help pay for prosthetic legs. The One Fund Boston. The charities that have been set up afterward, 
to help other victims of violent crimes. The fundraising to replace the dry docked boat in the backyard in Watertown. The memorials and charities that have been set up to honor the victims. Law enforcement's dedication and the officers who stood guard over the bodies on Boylston Street for hours while the crime scene was processed. Jeff Bowman throwing out the first pitch at a Red Sox game. The Sean Collier Memorial Fund. The Lingzi Foundation, a nonprofit set up to provide others with educational opportunities. The Crystal Campbell Scholarship. The Martin Richard Memorial Mile Run that now takes place annually. And the holiday, One Boston Day, which now occurs every April 15th and celebrates the strength and resilience of the Boston Strong. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes or just want to say hi, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.